0: This is Hal Hester, Lead Pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, over the last couple of months, you know we have been in the Gospel of John, and of course, if you were watching the trailer, you know that uh, uh, the primary theme uh, is that of eternal life and Jesus being the way of life. And so as we've been looking through this, uh, one of the things that we've said uh, week after week and just kind of uh, rehearsing to make sure that we're focused properly uh, is that that with that theme of eternal life that over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, every time you and I read the word, life, or uh, whether we're reading it uh, in the phrase the abundant life or eternal life, but even where it's just referencing the word life, that almost every occurrence uh, is using the words either sozo or zoe, uh, two forms of the same word, to refer to life which is significantly different in terms of its expectations. Normally, the Greek word for life is the word bios, from which we get our word biology, and terms uh, referencing the idea of physical life, the idea of just our simple existence. But this idea of sozo or zoe life is the expectation of a transcendent life of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us so that others will encounter the abundant or eternal life through us as well. The emphasis, of course, then being here in John is not about getting you into heaven as much as it is about getting heaven into you so that you would be an expression of heaven, that you would be an expression of the kingdom of God. Well, today we're going to be looking at the anointing of Jesus by Mary. Uh, very uh, uh, you know, famous story. A lot of people have never, ever read the Bible, are familiar with the story of Jesus being anointed by Mary. Uh, it's shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, not only in terms of the text, but in terms of actual events. If you were with us last week, we talked about the resurrection of Lazarus uh, and how that, that became a line in the sand. Uh, for the religious leaders, uh, uh, if you will, the catalyst for their decision to murder Jesus, uh, and which, of course, then leads to his being glorified on the cross. So at this point, uh, Jesus has uh, returned to Bethany, where we pick up today, for his final Passover in Jerusalem. So here we are, we're in chapter 12, we got 21 chapters in the book of John. The rest of the book is all about the last week of his life. So half, you know, of the material, fully half the material will be about leading up to the resurrection and then post-resurrection material in there uh, as well. But significant portion of the book obviously being focused on the last week of Jesus' life. So here he is. He returns to Bethany for his final Passover in Jerusalem. And he's going to stay at the home of resurrected Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. Uh, while he was there, days before his death, his burial and resurrection, Mary anoints him as preparation for Palm Sunday. So to give you a kind of a time framework, uh, in the Western mindset, we would say it's Saturday night, you know? And uh, if in the Jewish mindset, of course, it's Sunday night because they start with night and go to day instead of going day to night as we do in the West. Uh, We'll talk about that more in detail. But at this moment, this has so inflamed the religious leaders and their rage that now a plot is hatched to even kill Lazarus, which just shows you just how absolutely out of control they are, how out of control the rage is that is felt toward not only Jesus and their desperation to remain in power, but how it spills over to anyone associated with Jesus, even as we look in other gospels, we find uh, that you know, this is, spills over even to the likes of Nicodemus who is one of their own number, but even when he tries to reason with them, the rage is so over the top. And so these were dangerous times for the followers of Jesus, not the greatest dangers that they would yet face, but be, uh, you know because of persecution spiritual warfare was the normative environment for the early church in fact i would suggest to you that it is the normative environment for the church everywhere even today with the exception being the united states although we seem to feel like we're always persecuted and what are the experiences you know in terms of that the church collectively uh, throughout church history that common refrain that the blood of the martyrs has watered the seeds of faith. With that in mind, let's take a look at our text this morning. We'll start in chapter 11, verse 55, and we're going to go through chapter 12, verse 11. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please, whatever translation you have in your lap, that's my favorite today. Let's take a look. John chapter 11, verse 55, and we read these words. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, as usual, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you will always have with you. But you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So, as I said, uh, it's the night before the triumphal entry. Uh, I thought how fitting that this morning that we would, you know, sing uh, about, you know, the rocks crying out uh, as Jesus would rebuke uh, those who were telling him to tell his disciples to be quiet as they shouted, Hosanna in the highest. So here we are. It's a full week, you know, before Passover, but. All these events, just you know, the intensity just ramping up, right? And and uh, if you are not familiar with uh, all the traditions surrounding Passover, uh, you know, it was what we would call a day of holy obligation. In other words, the expectation was that you went. To the temple, if it by all means possible, and you celebrated uh, the Passover. It was the expectation, it was their highest and holiest day in their calendar. Much in the same way that, like in Christianity, people view uh, Christmas and Easter as being days of obligation that you're supposed to, uh, and, and hence why you have what we call sometimes Christmas and Easter Christians, CEOs, Christmas Easter only. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean that demeaning. I just simply it is a it is a common uh, occurrence. Uh, you just from a numerical standpoint, just a reality. And so Passover uh, was a day of holy obligation. In fact. Uh, the expectation was that if for some reason you would become defiled, whether that's ceremonially or uh, you know, ritualistically or in actual defilement, uh, be touching dead bodies, uh, different things like that that could defile you, uh, maybe uh, you know, uh, some other event, uh, certainly for women at that time, uh, if they had had their cycle, uh, then the expectation was that with inside the next month, you would do. You would make pilgrimage to the temple and you would celebrate it on your own, you know, basically without everybody else, but you would keep that day of obligation. And so uh, normally uh, what would happen is that people would come a whole week early uh, in preparation, one, to make sure that nothing happened on the way. You know, so if you got there, if, say in your travels you had to stay like in the, the home of a Gentile, you know, or something like that, or whatever, that you would be ritualistically pure when you, so you would come and you would stay, and the idea was to purify yourself and prepare yourself for uh, Passover. And, of course, there were other festivities uh, during the week because, you know, who doesn't love a great party when everybody's in town, right? So uh, they're, they're called upon to do this, and and so the, the there's a lot of discussion because knowing that it's a day of obligation, like Jesus, who was the most famous rabbi of the time, like the anticipation is, of course, he will be there, right? And so there's the debate. Some people are going, he's, of course he's going to be there. I mean, you know, I, he's a rabbi, right? And other people are going, I don't know, you know. Uh, those guys are really mad at him, you know? I mean, they're talking about killing him. Now, I'm not saying that they knew the plans, please. You know, I'm not, I'm like, you know, no... There's no giveaway of the plot. Uh, obviously, they are trying to plot in secret, sort of, and um, you know. Uh, but uh, you can just imagine the emotions, the buzz among the people, and some of the people. The last time they were in Jerusalem was for the last Passover, and during the last Passover, Jesus did a number of signs and wonders, and he did some teaching. And so, if you were here, you know, like a year ago and you saw all that and heard all of that, as you're coming back to Jerusalem, guess what the buzz is? I wonder if we'll see Jesus. I wonder if he's going to do another. Do you think he's the Messiah? Right? Like, all these conversations are happening on the road into Jerusalem. The road is all a buzz about Jesus. And. And when they get to town and they start asking people in Jerusalem, have you seen Jesus? Probably, depending on who they ask, they get a completely different answer, right? So some people are going to go, well, we don't know. It turns out the Pharisees are kind of against him. And, you know, so shh, you know, don't say anything. But we think he'll be here. We don't know if he'll be here. I've heard rumors that he's, you know, somewhere nearby. And other people went, Why? Why do you want to know about Jesus? Do you know the Pharisees are putting people out of the synagogue? You better not be seen with Jesus, you know. And so, you what what kind of reception do you get as the weary travelers make their way in the inquisitive travelers? You know, I just imagine all of that taking place, right? I mean, there's a lot of emotions. They're running high. On top of that, like there's still the everyday present reality. For every Jew, that we have the promise of the kingdom and of the restoration of Israel while the Romans are oppressing, while the Romans are still in control. Just imagine an occupying army in your land who's keeping you from enjoying all that you think your land should be. From enjoying all the freedoms that you believe are normative to your way of life. What a hotbed. With that backdrop, we enter into the home of Bethany, you know, in the home in Bethany of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and a Pharisee named Simon the leper. Did you know that Simon the leper is their daddy? Yeah. The plot thickens. When you read about Simon in other accounts in the other biographies, remember he's sitting there in kind of a judgmental attitude towards Jesus. Remember, that Simon the Pharisee like invites him in. Some texts refer to him as Simon the leper. That kind of becomes his nickname of like, how do you separate him from all the other Simons? You know? And so sometimes we nickname somebody Simon the Great. Sometimes we name them Simon the Lesser. His nickname became Simon the, the leper because Jesus, we know from church history, healed him of leprosy. So I want you to understand this relationship of Simon. Simon is a Pharisee, and so on one hand, he's really struggling with Jesus because, you know, as a good religious person, he has his ideas about the way things are supposed to be, and Jesus is breaking with that. Don't like this guy. On the other hand, Jesus is healing people, including him. How can this happen if God is not with him, right? So can you imagine the inner turmoil that he's having? I mean, he was raised in a good Bible belt church, and he had good doctrine preached to him his whole life, and now Jesus is coloring outside the lines, and in the meantime, he seems to be, like, ordained by God. Imagine the internal conflict. Man, you know, like, in some ways, I really like this Jesus guy, but... You know, like, he colors outside the lines. I mean, he says things that are bothersome. I don't like his theological viewpoint. He's got the end times all wrong. Not that anybody around here ever says anything like that. But anyhow, and so, you know, uh, you know he doesn't baptize right. No, okay, he doesn't uh, break communion the same way I do. Uh... Hello? Simon's having internal struggles because... He's a very religious man. He's a pious man. He's a good man. He's impressed by Jesus on some things. He doesn't like what Jesus is doing on the other hand. So here we have a home where Simon the Pharisee is the head of the house and his kids are Lazarus. Martha and Mary, who just happen to be big fans of Jesus. And it's where Jesus normally stays, probably how he got healed. And now Simon is throwing a banquet for Jesus. You know, that whole thing, raising my kid from the dead, you can't be all bad, right? I mean, I mean like any, if anybody wants to get on my good side, all you have to do is be nice to my kids, right? I mean, any parent will tell you that. If you, like, compliment my kid, you talk about how brilliant they are, smart, beautiful, whatever else. I like you already, you know? I mean, it's just, you know, that's a hint. But anyhow, um, and uh, and so uh, his children are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. Simon's undecided. And then we have this interaction of events between Two unmarried people, a man and a woman, I want you to not think about this being Jesus for just a moment. I want you to think about the expectations in the ancient Near East. I want you to think about even like in terms of what you would expect in the Middle East today, about the limited interactions between an unmarried woman and an unmarried man. The expectation of the day would have been that an unmarried woman doesn't go anywhere or do anything unless she's in the company of many other unmarried women. And usually there needs to be a relative, a male relative in the near vicinity to make sure that nothing happens to them And that they don't improperly come into conversation with another male. I want you to understand that in that society, the idea of a woman going to the rabbi by herself would have been unheard of. And you certainly don't touch the rabbi. Even as a guy, you don't typically touch the rabbi. So like whenever, you know, like, I, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I'm not really good at conveying that because, you know, if you get in very close proximity to me, you're like, well, you get hugged, you know. So, uh, I, you know, but, but in, in that culture, that was a no-no. You didn't really touch the rabbi, and if you were a woman, you certainly didn't touch the rabbi. And so we have this social climate where unmarried men and unmarried women don't touch One another. Also keep in mind this, that as much as you and I love Jesus, in the minds of many in his day, Jesus was born under questionable circumstances. Right? I mean, his mom and dad, they were engaged, but they weren't married, and she turned up pregnant. She was claiming it's a a virgin birth, and they're all going, right. And so they leave town, I mean, it was to go to a census, but I'm sure it felt good to get out from under the gaze of a small town like Nazareth. You do realize in a small town like like Nazareth, Brooksville is a thriving metropolis in comparison. This isn't just a one light town. This is a no lights, not even stop sign town. And so here in the midst of that, like, that, that rumor mill is following Jesus. They're constantly implying it about how dare you tell us, you who come from questionable birth. The Bible is polite when it says it. Uh, let me just say to you just kind of bluntly, in other words, what they were saying is, how dare you lecture me, you bastard? That's what was really said. We translate things really, I don't know why we do that. We always like take, like as if the, we have to sterilize the Bible. Isn't that kind of funny? I mean, we're always like, oh, you can't use that word. Well, it's in the Bible, so maybe, okay, well, anyhow. Religion is such a heavy, heavy yoke. So, here it is, he's born under these questionable circumstances. Now, Mary is, you know, she, and, and she's been allowed to sit with the men and learn, right? Women weren't supposed to learn from the rabbis. They were supposed to learn from their mamas who learned from the husbands who learned from the rabbi. And she got to sit there. And so Martha had come in and complained, right? That she was in there sitting with the men learning the Bible. Jesus was a radical. He had allowed Mary to sit and learn, and in the minds of Jesus' contemporaries, not only is a radical, but now this scene, like this is so over the top, I can just tell you that every religious button in the book is being pushed in this moment, right? Because now she she takes this expensive nard. Now, if you don't know what nard is, Nard is uh, from a little plant in India. Still grows today, and they make a gooey kind of perfume from it. And it was often used in uh, burial. It was used for other purposes as well. It's a perfume, uh, but uh, very strong smelling. It talks about the room filled with the fragrance of perfume uh, and very expensive. You've got to go all the way to India to get it. This is you know, like back in the days of Shoe Leather Express, for everything, it coming, it was worth 300 denarii. Let me give you a translation. A denarii is the average wage of a man for a full day's work. 300 days is the average number of days worked in a year after festivities and Sabbaths. It is a year's salary's worth in one little box. And she breaks the neck on that thing and starts to anoint him. It is likely her only inheritance as a woman. She is literally, as a woman, giving everything she has of value. Add to that, her hair is considered her glory. That's why married women covered their hair so it would only be shared with their husbands. That's why the whole thing in Corinthians gets all crazy when the women take the covering off their head is that they're like exposing their glory. And in this moment, where she takes everything she has of value, herself, her only wealth, and she lavishly pours it out on Jesus as an expression of her affection, of her gratefulness, of her kindness, as she weeps over the forgiveness of her sins and the mercy that Jesus has shown her. Can I just tell you, this is a very intimate scene. My bet is, even today, if you were in a party and somebody started doing all of this, you might get a little uncomfortable. You would be thinking to yourself, like, wow, that's like, you know, a little over the top here in public, you know. I mean, like, get a room. You know what I mean? No, no. Seriously, that's that's what it would have felt like. And so as this lavish bit of affection is happening, Simon's sitting there and he's going. What's wrong with Jesus that he's allowing this? Does he not recognize how sinful she is? And she's be, This is daddy. I want you to understand how deep this goes, right? Daddy's looking and he's thinking to himself, she's being extremely sinful. The only thing worse is, I thought that, you know, everybody thinks he might be the Messiah, but if he was really as gifted, and ca- like, why is he allowing this to go on? And so, right there, like, the, the question gets asked. Uh, he, he's thinking to himself, and Jesus knows what he's thinking and reproaches him. And in another text over in Luke, it, he tells him a parable and explains to him about the person who is forgiven much, loves much, and the person who's forgiven little loves only a little, and he rebukes him. But when you get right down to it, Simon was just being a good religious guy. Because he wouldn't let a woman touch him like that. That wasn't socially normative. Now she's like lavished all of this on him. Now, in some accounts, it has her anointing his head. In other accounts, the focus is on his feet. If you're wondering which it is, the answer is yes. She anoints him from head to toe. The emphasis on the head in some places is to point out the whole idea of The word Christ or Messiah means anointed one, referring to his kingship. And so the anointing goes on the head of a king. The anointing on his feet is emphasizing the contrast between her and the other persons in the situation. So here we have this two-fold kind of thing happening and different emphasis in different gospels, but the point is still the same. Three out of the four texts Talk about her anointing him for burial. But his burial and his kingship go hand in hand. She's preparing him for his crowning with thorns and ultimately his glorification on Good Friday. So she's anointing him as king and She's demonstrating great humility in which she pours everything she has and all of her own glory and lays it at his feet. It is double, you know, the picture is full. And then her using her hair, and and then that whole thing about, well, you know, she's a a sinful woman. I I don't know how many times I have heard it taught that she used to be a prostitute. There are many Marys in the Bible. This is not that one. Don't confuse the stories, and just because Simon says she's sinful, don't read into that. She was a wealthy, from a wealthy, pious family. She's breaking all social decorum. Jesus is allowing it. Her dad is sitting in judgment of the whole thing. And they're most at odds with Jesus because he's not being guarded enough in their mind as a religious teacher. So there's all this turmoil, right? And it says she's a sinful woman. That does not mean she's a prostitute any more than it means you're a prostitute because you're sinful. And by the way, if you are or ever were a prostitute, I want you to know there is forgiveness in Christ. You are welcome here. Everyone here is sinful and in need of redemption and forgiveness. And one of the hallmarks of Jesus was that he associated with People of loose character and prostitutes, right? Well, we're awful quiet on that note. Do you suppose that religiosity has ever crept into the church so that we are unable to reach the prostitutes and the drunkards because we're too busy managing our image instead of sharing and being the light? Could it be that sometimes we have built a theology and taken verses out of context that say, do not let bad company corrupt good morals that has nothing to do with that and everything to do is a rebuke against the church for preaching a false gospel and we've lifted it from its context and twisted it? Do you know one of those texts in particular talks about valuing prophecy and it says when churches don't value prophecy that there's the con the condemnation is be on them for not valuing the prophetic word it's actually not about people's moral standing we best be careful Or we will isolate ourselves from the lost and become irrelevant to our society. And they might think us a bunch of mean, judgmental people who have nothing to bring them. No hope, no gospel, no love, no mercy. I don't suppose you've ever heard anybody talk about the church like that before? Could it be? that maybe we've done it to ourselves, acting more like Pharisees than Jesus? Hmm. Probably not you, though. I mean, you know, somebody else. But she breaks with social decorum. She anoints Jesus. She weeps with gratitude. And part of it is because not only how he's treated her, but Even in this, he does not objectify her. She doesn't become the person of scorn, even as the religious people are scorning her. It's a powerful moment, packed with all kinds of powerful lessons about Jesus being anointed king, anointed for glorification, prepared for burial about the, the lessons of forgiveness and what is real versus religious tendency towards sin management and controls and shuns people over outward perceptions. Meanwhile, you know one of the things that stands out about the Pharisees is they let real sin, real hatred, go unchecked in their hearts. That's why Jesus was constantly saying to them, speaking to them about the attitude of the, the heart. Because you can outwardly manage your behavior and inside be full of hatred and contempt. And that's not right either. Please don't miss this. Sin matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But I'm saying that your job isn't managing the people in the world or even the person sitting next to you. Your job is to renew your mind in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Your job is to work with the Holy Spirit to change your heart and your behavior. But unless you're invited to help someone else in discipleship, stay in your own lane. You're not the Holy Spirit. And then comes the big contrast between her and Judas. Everybody hates Judas. <laughs> you know. It's easy to draw a contrast, but can I just point out something to you? I want you to really think about who Judas is for just a moment. I want you to like Judas for just a moment so that you can really appreciate what's happening. Judas is just like the high priest Caiaphas he is deeply religious remember he's been traveling with Jesus and company for years now don't forget that he was there when they tore the bread and it multiplied and fed thousands don't forget that when Jesus sent the apostles out two by two that means that Judas was one of the two and healed people, and cast out demons. Hello? But Judas is like Caiaphas. He's also prideful, arrogant, power-hungry, and outwardly a religious jerk. In Mark 14, it tells us that this was the breaking point for Judas. This was the moment when he decided to betray Jesus. I mean, up to this point, he's been kind of enjoying working with you. I mean, like, he's... he's. He's a superstar, a religious superstar. He's having some great experiences. He's seen people healed. He's seen uh, food multiplied. Uh, up to this point, uh, J- Judas has been, you know, like he's, he's ready for Jesus to declare that he's the Messiah. He's ready for war with the Romans. He's ready for all those things. But then this is when he loses it. Right here. Number one, Look what he let that woman do. Number two, he rebukes him in public. And that just undoes him right there. I mean, you know, Jesus answers his, his complaint with Deuteronomy chapter 15, 11. And now understand, as rebukes go, this is pretty mild, right? He paraphrases Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11 that Judas would have known all of his life growing up. It is the admonishment, it is the primary admonishment of the Jewish people that they would always be generous to the poor. And with it came the promise that as long as the Jews would be generous to the poor without passing judgment. Did you hear that last part? As long as the Jews would be generous to the poor, not deciding whether they were worthy or anything else, if they would just be generous to the poor on all occasions, you didn't need to filter them or have them fill out an application to get your help, your kindness, your mercy, because nobody is deserving. Nobody. He said, in the day that you do that, I will bless you and you will live long in the land. The expectation was that as long as they were generous with what God gave them, that God would continue to fill their pockets as needed and he would work out all the judgment part. Isn't that cool? And so Jesus paraphrases that. He just says, you know, uh, and he says to him in this, you know, Listen, the poor you will always have with you, because in the context, it goes on to say that you cannot eliminate poverty, that you will never do away with poverty, which I know is not exactly popular with some people, but especially if you're poor. (laughs) But God calls on His people to be generous to the poor, even though in some sense it's a bottomless pit. We're not generous to the poor because we can successfully lift everyone from poverty. We are generous to the poor because God said be generous to the poor. But Jesus' point was not that the poverty was a bottomless pit. His point was that generosity was not limited to the poor. In this case, generosity in worship was also valuable. And I would say that in the spirit of the New Testament, part of a kingdom lifestyle is generosity. Because generosity is never about need. Generosity is about trusting God with all that we have. What you say when you give freely is that freely I was given and freely I give. You're saying, I believe, Lord, that if I hand it out of this pocket, you will fill the other pocket. I, I, I have just a, a sense of trust in you. When you call me to be generous, I will be generous. Then John tells us the inside scoop. But Jesus or Judas didn't actually care about the poor. If anything, it was his religious way of you know, lining his own pockets. He thought it looked good to reprimand her in his religiosity, right? He, he, he's taking the church position, if you will, the synagogue position, and, well, you know, <laughs> this could have been given to the poor. And that moment when, Jesus, when Judas decided to throw Jesus to the wolves and rebuke him out of his religious sensibilities, Jesus answered him, and then in his pride, Mark says, he decided to betray Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, prophesied about Jesus even as he acknowledged his miracles. And Judas participated in the miracles, even casting out demons and healing the sick in Jesus' name. And yet when his pocketbook and his pride took a hit, he was willing to betray Jesus. It is important that you and I do not let our religiosity become our undoing. Be careful that you do not let your need to look good or your efforts to control your own sin tendencies to become the measure by which you judge the intents and actions of others. And when other people do fall around you, be sure that the hand you use is to grab their hand rather than a stone. It's not that we never put boundaries on bad behavior. That's clear. I'm just saying that your motives should be love and never superiority. Now, kind of a side note in this. I want you to see what happens. At this point, the disciples have Jesus so well covered, so well protected. His whereabouts are unknown. People are looking for him everywhere, right? I mean, the religious leaders are looking for him. Uh, his fan base is looking for him, if you will. You know, everybody's looking for Jesus and yet they, they don't seem to find him. And in some ways, I mean we find out later that it was fairly well known among the disciples that he would always go to Bethany and he would always stay at this one home, but they apparently kept it enough under wraps that until the gospel revealed that later on, after Jesus' resurrection, they they did not know where Jesus was. Being the friend of Jesus constantly put people you know, in danger. I I they you know, I mean, like look what they're saying that they wanna they want to, you know, kill Lazarus because he was raised from the dead. Imagine such violent hostility, such open persecution, and that it continues all the way through the early church even to today. We've got friends right now who are in Pakistan, uh, church planters. Uh, uh, our friend Yusuf that we've been uh, doing some mission work support with, and and they're they're looking to plant 500 churches in Pakistan this year alone. And some of the people they sent out to plant churches, people beat them and burned their houses to the ground. Do you know what those people are doing that are that lost their homes? They're continuing to pastor the people that they have. And so this week we had the joy of getting to like help support them, get those people back in homes. It is normative all over the world for the people of Jesus Christ to be persecuted because that's how they treated Jesus. And when you're the friend of Jesus, it not only puts Lazarus' life in peril, but throughout the, the history of the church, the acts of the apostles, extra-biblical resources, everything, you know, tell us that that's normative. Here's what's also normative in the midst of all of that. That Christian hospitality, including protecting one another from persecution, taking care of one another in times like that, being generous to one another when, we lost, when, when they lose everything because of the gospel. So here they were in the midst of this. And they couldn't find Jesus. Jesus. You know, the only way they found Jesus, the way they cornered him that night, was when the betrayer used a kiss to betray his rabbi. Do you know if that moment hadn't happened where she anointed Jesus, if he hadn't gotten so angry and disgusted, Jesus would have never gone to the cross. In the midst of it, God uses even the worst actions of people to bring good news and hope and healing to the rest of us. Persecution is normal for the church. However, that does not mean we go looking for it. I'm not saying, like, you know, everybody needs to run out. Gee, the American church not being persecuted enough. Let's go do something really stupid and be mean and critical to everybody around. No, no. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that we live in a tremendous time of freedom and the little bit of pushback that we get in our society. Like people are dying for the gospel. And people in your community are dying without it. Would it really be such a huge thing to ask for you to step outside of your comfort zone and in the kindest way possible, in generosity of spirit in mercy, that you would share the good news of Jesus Christ with your friends, your family? I know somebody might be rude Somebody might not talk to you. Somebody might say mean things about you on social media. I'm not doubting that that would hurt. But I am saying to join the company of the saints throughout the ages of the church. and Recognize that it is not always good when everyone speaks well of you. And feels free to ignore you. The Apostle Peter best said it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 17. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's always easy to talk about the benefits of coming to Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the presence of God in our hearts and lives. But it's also important that we invite people to count the cost. That we not invite people to a, a, a lesser gospel. And that's significant to the gospel. The invitation that's being extended to you is not just simply like a get out of hell card, you know, get out of hell free card. But it's the invitation To a life abundant of where the holy spirit is working in us and through us and transforming us our character our minds renewing us and that people begin to experience the grace and the mercy of god the life of the kingdom here and now through us by being engaged with us that the work of god is going through us that we like jesus like we are looking around to see what the father is doing and in that there's this great generosity where we give of ourselves our resources and everything about us freely knowing full well that many times it will be rejected knowing full well that sometimes we will be rejected in the midst of it and yet we continue to extend that hope because we know that eternity weighs in the balance. We've experienced eternity in the here and now, and that's why we can look forward with such great hope. It's not just something that we think about that someday, maybe someday, but we know that hope within us. It lives within us now, and it's gushing out, it's spilling out over Through our lives, into the lives of other people. And that is our blessed hope. That's why we take the risks. That's why we give freely. That's why we trust Him, because we know that He is real. And if you don't know that in the here and now, then the invitation is for you to come and taste of eternal life, not to say a prayer and check a box. Not so that you can come here and fill a pew every Sunday and give us 10% of your income. Not so that you can be religious and inwardly be wasting away but so that the kingdom of God, so that eternal life would be yours and everyone around you. That, that's the invitation. And I can tell you that that is worth pouring your life out for. And if you don't have something worth pouring your life out for, I want to invite you to come taste and see that He is good. Let's stand together. You know, the thing that's so intriguing to me about Jesus is that He's the crucified king. That how he identifies with our pain, our suffering, and the chaos of the cosmos and all these things, that it breaks his heart and that the way out, the way on, is him. He is the way out of death. He's the way into eternal life. And he's made a way for you. A way for you and I to escape the tyranny of sin and death, even now. And so when you and I accept Jesus, we're not getting our ticket punched. We're entering into relationship. We're entering into life. It's wholly different than just doing church. I'm longing for that day when the final revelation of His rule and reign over heaven and earth is revealed. I want you to know it too. So if you're not a part of that, I want to invite you to come. We're going to have prayer team members come up in just a moment. And I want you to come and talk to them about, like, how do I engage in that? How do I walk in that? That's what I want you to talk to somebody about. Second, if growing up in the Bible Belt South or some other religious scrutiny, you have ever lived under the gaze of judgment and felt shut out of eternal life by the religious elite, I want to invite you to come get some prayer and care. I want to tell you that you are welcome And I want you to come experience welcome through the prayers and the kindness of those on the welcome team, on the the prayer team. Third, if you are a disciple of Jesus, um, but maybe you feel trampled by life, trampled by trials and circumstances, you just feel vulnerable, then I want to invite you to get some soul care today. Ask the prayer team to pray with you for you. Get, get you know just the the blood of Jesus pleaded over your body, your life, your heart, your mind. Uh, Spend some time just soaking in His presence because I just think that that's the way that you pick up and you go ahead another day into the realities of this life. Like I I deal with it all the time, And, and and the way I pick up. The way I keep moving is that I not only engage with the Father myself, but I constantly, I, you know, our prayer team people can tell you, I'm regularly messaging saying, I need you to pray about things for me. I, I, listen, you and I need His power and His presence at work in us. And so there is nothing about coming forward for prayer that makes you less. I would say just the opposite. I I think it shows great strength. And so I just want to welcome you to come get some prayer. So with that said, let's pray. And uh, prayer team members, go ahead and come on up. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the hope of eternal life and for the power and the presence of your spirit at work in us and through us. We believe that you are a good and kind God, that you give good gifts to your children. And Lord, for every person Walking with you, who knows you, uh, we pray your continued strengthening of them day by day. And for every person who is afar off, my prayer is today that they would sense your presence, find your hope, your presence welcoming, and that they would find in you that you are good, that your presence, your life is a healing bomb to their lives. And would you pull them out of their places of chaos and defeat and set their feet upon the rock so that they might stand no matter what the storms they are facing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got kids in Kids Church, let me encourage you to grab them first before you come up for prayer. Otherwise, let me encourage you to come get some prayer. I hope to see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.